Father, now this morning, we pray that the Spirit of Truth, whom you promised, would lead us into truth as we open the Word of Truth, as we open to study and hear what it is the Spirit has to speak to us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are in our Everlasting Gospel series, and in fact, I was going to wrap up with this message today. I wasn't going to wrap up with this message. I was going to wrap up with another message. I was going to skip this entirely, what I'm going to go over today, and then I thought, what I'm covering today is actually one of the uh, transformational pieces of understanding that helped me in my Christian walk when it comes to understanding the gospel and righteousness by faith, and not just, you know, those are so, that verbiage is so cliché. But the idea of faith and works, um, the title of the message is, and they don't take American Express. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the, the ads, the commercials, right? You know, American Express used to be the elite card. It was, that, it was that credit card that only the most important people, the influential people had, you know, American Express. And so Visa came out with an ad campaign, and they would highlight different businesses. Anybody remember these? It would highlight a different business, some ski resort somewhere, and it would finish up by saying, oh, and by the way, they don't take American Express, right? Your big, important elite card is worthless here, right? So the whole idea is there are some things that we can think are very valuable, but have no value in certain places. And when we're talking about faith and works, the question is, what are our works worth? Well, I can say they're worth nothing, and you say, yeah, I know that, we've heard that before. But this is where the challenge comes in in the life of a Christian, especially for a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Because Seventh-day Adventist Christians, while we believe we're saved by grace, we still believe the law of God is important to keep. And people will challenge and say, well, where are you guys coming from on that? Huh? I mean, you're saved by grace, not by works. And like, well, where do we, what, what place do works have in this whole thing? You know, the Bible tells us, and let's go to Romans. If you have your Bible with me, let's go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and verse 20. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 3 and verse 20. Now, you don't get much plainer than this passage, this text. Romans 3, verse 20, the Bible says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law... What? No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, I could go on a lot about this, but I, I will interject here just briefly. It's kind of in, interesting to note that some people will read this verse right away and say, yeah, we're not, by, by, by the works of law, no flesh is justified, so that kind of takes the law out of the picture. But if you read the rest of the verse, the apostle says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So right there in the verse, he's telling us that the law still exists and has a function. The function, and we've talked about this before, is to point out sin so that we recognize our need of a Savior who is Jesus Christ. I like the way Ellen White put this in the book Faith and Works. She says this, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting, or we would say deserving or earning, anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. <laughs> you could have said I had more amens on that one. 
Amen. There is not, there is, it is absolutely impossible. Get it, banish it from your mind, the thought that our works would merit, earn, deserve anything. So the logical follow-up question is, then why good works? You know, it's not like the Bible is silent on good works. Let's look at a few things here. Let's go to James chapter 2. Now, you're probably familiar with this one, James chapter 2. You go in the New Testament after the book of Hebrews. You come to the book of James. And in James chapter 2, let's look at verse 17. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I just want to zero in on, on uh, well, let's, let's look at verse 14 first. Let's go to James chapter 2 and verse 14. The, the apostle here asks, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. I think that always... I mean, I see this frozen person on the street corner, and here's some Christian going by, and he says, Hey, God bless you, man. You know, like, you did nothing. Anyway, that's what James is saying. You say be warmed and filled. Shouldn't there be some follow-up action to that? That's his point. So he says, you know, if you have real faith, you ought to be doing something. So he says... If, if one says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now you may have heard that the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther had real issues with the book of James. How many of you heard that? He thought it shouldn't even have been included in the scripture in his early ministry. He did come around in his later ministry to understand what, what the apostle was getting at. But it was that same contra- that seeming contradiction. Well, wait a minute, we're saved by faith, so why this emphasis on works? Now, I'm going to give you some other references that we're not going to look, we might look up a couple of them, but I mentioned, I've mentioned this before, that if you go to the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, now you have letters in the Bible, you have letters from Paul, you have letters from Peter, right? Letters from John. We also have letters from Jesus, and a lot of people overlook that. We have the Gospels, but in the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches are letters from Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, they're in red. And the very first thing he says to every single one of the churches is, I know your faith. I'm checking to see if you guys are good students this morning. It's not what the Bible says. What he says is, I know your works. This is Jesus himself. Very first thing that he says to every one of those churches. I know your works. The Bible tells us, that's in Revelation 2 and 3, by the way. The Bible tells us in uh, Revelation 20 and verse 13 that we're going to be judged by our works. The Bible tells us in Revelation 22, 12 that we'll be rewarded according to our works. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 that we are created for good works. Well, you can, you can see where this is kind of like, wait a minute, we, we, we just got done saying our works are, are worth nothing, and yet there's all this stuff about works. Go with me to Titus chapter 2. Okay, you're in Hebrews, no, I'm sorry, in James, go back past Hebrews, go to the left, and then you'll go past Philemon, you'll be in all the T's there. And uh, the book of Titus is just a very small book, but we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. 
The Bible says here, in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? To all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should do what? We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. What is it that teaches us that? What does the Bible say teaches us that we should live that way? The what? The grace of God. I thought the grace of God was like, hey, don't worry about that. Just trust in Jesus. You hear that sometimes. The Bible says the grace of God teaches us that we should be living a certain way. Almost sounds a little legalistic. That we should be living this certain way. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, now notice, don't miss this, who gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, what? Zealous for what? What does zealous mean? Now, be honest with me. If, 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 if we're talking in a conversation, I say, look, that guy's really zealous. What are you thinking right away? He's over the top, right? Zeal- that guy is, he's out, he's out in left field somewhere. He's a little bit extreme, right? I mean, zealous is a word that we use to, you're talking about really about something. And the Bible says that Christ came, he wanted to purify us and make us zealous for Good works. Well, how can that be when we're not, our works amount to nothing? Okay, so the reason I'm bringing this up is just this is the conundrum. And don't look at me with the deer in the headlights because I know if you're a Seventh-day Adventist at any rate, you've been into 101 discussions on this thing. If they're in almost every Sabbath school class. They're in the articles and online. And people are always wrestling over what, you know, what did the faith and works thing. Now, something I want to interject here, and, and we'll unfold this a little bit as we go. I just got back from 3ABN camp meeting, and they have, they're, they're going over different Adventist beliefs, and they had me speak on the existence of the heavenly sanctuary. And as I was going through it, I, I read some things that caught my attention or you know, reminded me. There's something fascinating, and it's not limited to the sanctuary, but when God instituted the animal sacrifices... It was for the purpose of trying to reveal what he was willing to do for us. So in other words, the the sacrificial lamb wasn't something I was giving. It was something he was giving to me, his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay for my sins. When I confessed my sin, you know, the sinner would bring the lamb to the sanctuary. But when they understood God's purpose, they knew that it wasn't me giving something to God, but God was giving something to me. But here's what happened. Among the heathen nations, see, the Israelites began to mingle with those who were not believers in the true God. Their worship services were the other way around. Their worship services were they would give sacrifices to appease their gods. Now, who do you think concocted that? That's exactly what the devil's plan was. He knew that if he could get the Israelites interacting with the other nations, that it would turn their understanding of God and his will and purpose for them. And instead of their service to God being a joyful service that was a reciprocal or a a, uh, response to God's love, 
It became an appeasement to win God's love. Are you following that? Folks, that's a big difference. <laughs> that's like this. Right? Completely turned around. And nothing has changed. This is why the devil... See, we talk about it in the church. The devil wants to get the church into the world and mingle with the world. Why? So he can get us watching things we shouldn't watch and, and, and eating and drinking things we shouldn't eat. Uh-uh. So he can turn your concept of who he is. See, that's the ultimate. That's what happens. Is we begin to see God as a God who is demanding our uh, uh, obedience to appease him and to earn his love. Have you ever given, I could say, have you given your love to somebody? Have you ever given your obedience to somebody? Have you ever chosen to obey somebody because you so loved and respected them? How many of you have ever done that? Have you ever obeyed somebody because you had to? Is there a difference? Uh, you bet. And, and this, is, this is at the heart of what we're looking at here when we're talking about faith and works. So, good works. You know, we're not, our works don't value, don't merit anything, don't earn anything with God. But the Bible says a whole lot about good works. Are good works really good? Are they really good? Now, I like good works. I'm, I'm a perfectionist. You're like, I knew it. I like things done well. My first real job, you know how I got it? I had a, well, it wasn't the first, it wasn't the first job I ever held, but when my wife and I got married, I went to work for an electrical contractor, but there was a, they had a slow day, I was just brand new starting out, they had a slow day, and a friend of the owner of that company was a local builder, and he needed a laborer in a job that he was doing. He actually just had a custom house he was building, and, they, and my boss lent me to him to go sweep it. Let me tell you something, I swept that house. I sweep in the corners. I don't hide the dirt. This guy was so impressed by the way I swept the house, he's like, I want him as my personal help. Uh, when I became an electrician later on, I'd go into jobs, and I hope I'm, I, I, I hope I'm not stepping on your toes here, I may be, but one thing that bugged me and it bugs me to this day. I go buy a house. You know, some people like to remodel their houses themselves before they sell them. I'm like, save me the trouble. Don't remodel it yourself. You can have a professional remodeler or save me the trouble because I'm going to rip it all out and do it right. Because I have been, as an electrician, I go into a house and somebody did their own wiring. Open air splices. Right? Steve, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, that's the wire running through the air, and it's like, how do you cut it? Just put a couple wire nuts on that thing and tape it up. No, it should be in a box somewhere, and the wire should be stapled, and it should be looking nice and neat. And I'd go into these houses to work as an electrician. The, 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 uh, the electrical panel looked like a rat's nest, and the wire... I know this doesn't make sense to you guys, but... I like to see things done well, and I've, I've carried that into my Christian faith. If that's important to me when I'm serving a man on this earth, how much more when I'm serving the God of heaven who gave me eternal life? You understand what I'm saying? There's a motivational factor there. And I'm not alone in this. Take your Bible and go to Deuteronomy with me. 
Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm just going to look at it. I'm going to tell you something. I looked up, you can look up this phrase, just look up the word careful, or careful to observe. And Deuteronomy is full of it. But I want want you to see this in in just a few passages. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 6, the Lord says here, Therefore be what? Careful to observe them. And he's talking about statutes and judgments. I probably should. Let's read verse 5. It gives us the context. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, so Moses is being here, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them. What does that mean to be careful? That's sweeping in the corners, folks. Right? Yes or no? I mean, that's being particular. Now, I'm going to get into this in a minute, but I know we thought, oh, no, being particular, that's the Pharisees. They were particular. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But notice that the Lord himself, and you're going to see this, if you go through Deuteronomy, you see it all over. I'm just going to show you three texts in Deuteronomy where he says the same thing. Be careful to observe. Be careful in what you're doing. I want you to, make, I want you to give attention to this. I want you to be um, particular about it. Be careful to observe these things. Look at uh, Deuteronomy 26, 16. Deuteronomy 26 and verse 16. Deuteronomy 26, verse 16. The Bible says, This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be what? Careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments and judgments, and that you will obey his voice. So he says, be careful to do these things. And in 28, chapter 28, and verse 1, the Bible says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord, if you how obey? Diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you on high, above all nations of the earth. Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, but that's Old Testament, right? Old Testament, that's what they were supposed to do. Are you aware that there are even Christians today who think the Jews are saved by what they did, by their law-keeping? Are you aware of that? Folks, nobody's ever going to be saved by law-keeping. The Bible says there's one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. Nobody does good enough law-keeping to ever be saved by it. And yet God says, be careful. I want you to be careful to do these things. Be careful to observe them. Well, like, isn't that what the, what the Pharisees were about? Well, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew 23. Let's go to Matthew 23. Let's look at the Pharisees for a minute. Matthew 23, 23. The whole chapter of Matthew 23 is the woes on the scribes and the Pharisees as Jesus basically denounces the religious leaders of his day. And he says in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected, what? The weightiers of the matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Sounds like there were some things they weren't particular in. Right? Like justice and mercy and faith. 
But they were particular in the mint and anise and the cumin. They probably shouldn't have been doing that, right? What's Jesus say? These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Let me ask you a simple question. Did Jesus say they should be doing more or less? Really? More? I thought the Pharisees always... Now, let's get something clear about the Pharisees, folks. The Pharisees were particular. But they were particular in their own ideas, not in God's commands. They had all kinds of regulations that God never even commanded. The fact that somebody's particular is not the problem. The problem was, in fact, and we do this today, the problem is when they didn't want to do what God wanted them to do, like being, judge, uh, like being fair in judgment and mercy and faith, they would multiply a bunch of other things over in this area, real particular in their counting of these particular herbs, like mint, are tiny, tiny, tiny. They'd be very particular in that as if to balance out what they weren't doing. So some of us, we can be really careful in diet, what we eat and everything, you know, because we are not as careful in our entertainment selection. And we'll balance it out. Okay, that, that was fair. In other words, it's, it's almost like a scorekeeping system instead of a loyalty to God. Look at, look at John. We're going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to John. I like to ask people, who, <laughs> I'm going to ask you this. Who kept the law more strictly, Jesus or the Pharisees? If I asked you who kept the law, who kept the law better, Jesus or the Pharisees, what would you say? But when I throw that word strictly in there, oh, strict. That's the Pharisees. That's just where we go. Is there something wrong with being strict? Let me ask you this. Ladies, would you rather your husband play loose with the parameters of your marriage and who he associates with, with other women, or would you rather him be strict in that area? A lot of times it has to do with motivation. Now look at John 7, 19. Notice what Jesus says here to the Pharisees or the religious leaders. John 7, 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet what? None of you keeps the law. Don't ever be going around saying the Pharisees kept the law. Jesus himself said they didn't keep the law. They kept their idea of it. They kept their own regulations. But what did Jesus say of himself? Go to John 15, 10. What did Jesus say of himself? In John 15.10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have what? Kept my Father's commandments. Jesus is the one that kept the commandments, not the Pharisees. You throw the word strict in there, it doesn't change anything. You bet Jesus was strict. He was careful to observe what his Father said. Look at Matthew 5 with me, verse 20. Matthew 5 and verse 20. Bible says here, these are the words of Jesus once again. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness, what? Exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees wasn't very righteous. It was hollow, it was outward, it was formal. Here's the point, folks. Some people say, well, I thought obedience was legalism. At least a certain level, like, you, like if you get real particular. I, 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 this, this discussion sometimes that, that at least some of us have so confuses new folks. I had a lady who just came into the church and she was so confused on this and so careful. And of course, she's got Seventh-day Adventists in the church arguing about faith and works. And then she's got her, her non-Adventist friends saying, why are you trying to keep the law? That's legalistic. And with all of this, she thought, you know, and then it wasn't just the Sabbath. Then you have to return tithe. Give 10% back to God. And she was so wrought up over this, she came to the conclusion that if she would return 8% instead of 10%, that would keep it from being legalistic. Because legalism is doing exactly and particularly what God says. That, that's what was communicated to her mind. Isn't obedience legalism or at least a certain level? Listen. True obedience, true obedience can never be legalism. Legalism is the response of the carnal heart to the law of God. True obedience can only come from a converted heart because the Bible says a law is spiritual, and we have to be made spiritual if we're going to keep a spiritual law. Notice this statement from the book Christ's Object Lessons. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. You mean going through all you're trying to keep it? You, you don't obey. Why? When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. Why? Because a new heart in the Christian gives you a new desire for spiritual things. That doesn't mean you don't have enough. Look, folks, we have two natures in us when we become Christians. I need to clarify this again. Before you become a Christian, you have one nature fallen. We're all born with it. Praise God, we can come to Christ, confess our sins, accept Him as our Savior, and He puts in us a new nature. But we still have the old nature. And that's where the battle comes in, when you want to do the right thing, but you're tempted to do the wrong thing. And so um, this is not saying there's not going to be a conflict, but when Jesus puts his nature in you, there's a new interest in spiritual things. If that interest isn't there, we may know the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. The essence of all righteousness is what? Loyalty to our Redeemer. Don't miss that. True obedience is not about earning favor with God. It's about loyalty to God because of what he's done for us. The big difference in that. This loyalty, this will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. That's the motivational factor. Obedience is about loyalty. Folks, there's only two sides in this game. I want you to see this in Acts chapter Chapter 26. People don't like to think about what I'm about to share with you. But the Bible's clear about it, that there are only two masters. There's no Switzerland, folks, in the Christian life. There's no, hey, I'm undecided. I'm here in the middle. You're serving one master or another. And in Acts chapter 26, sorry, I was talking and not turning. In Acts chapter 26, look at verse 17. In fact, here, the, the, the Apostle Paul is telling him what the Lord told him when he called him to be an apostle. 
Acts 26, 17 says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to do what? Turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You see that? That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus said, Paul, I want you to preach to them. You're going to turn them from one side to the other. There's no middle side. There's no middle ground. You're either obeying God or you're obeying the enemy. You're like, ah, I'm undecided. I'm not going to. No, you're, you are deciding by not deciding. Obedience is about loyalty to God. You may have heard the story. I love the story of elderly man who was coming to a church, his vision was going, his hearing was going, and year after year, and there he was, to the point where he couldn't, he couldn't even, he had the assistive listening devices and he couldn't hear, and, and uh, couldn't make out stuff on the screen, couldn't read the words in his Bible. One of the saints, I would guard against it, but one of the saints, I guess, a little, being a little more bold and forward, said, hey, listen, I've got to ask you, brother, why do you keep coming to church? You come here, you can't, I mean, I'm not trying to be, look, you don't get anything out of it, do you? You can't see anything. You can't hear anything. He says, the reason I'm here is I want the devil to know whose side I'm on. Amen. It's about loyalty to God. But our works aren't worth anything. Why do them? Go to Acts, uh, not Acts. Let's go to our scripture reading, 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, Old Testament. After the books of Samuel and then the kings, we come to the Chronicles First Chronicles 29. Now, the background here is that King David, you may know that King David wanted to build a temple. You know, you had the, in the wilderness, you had the little tent, sanctuary. King David said, no, God shouldn't have, he should have an elaborate temple. I mean, all these pagan nations have these elaborate temples for their gods. Our God should have an elaborate temple. Well, God didn't permit David to build that temple. He said, you're a man of war, and I don't want you building the temple. And you can go and read about that. So he said, you, you gather all the materials together, and your son Solomon will build it. So David gathers the material. They collect this offering of the things that they need, gold, silver, precious stones, and cloth, and all of this. And David is coming before God and offering this great offering. Now, if you were to donate a lot of money to the church... What would be the temptation? At least you can get your name on a plaque somewhere, right? At least there's some, there's some write-up. Recognition. We, we tend, even if you're like, I know I shouldn't. There's a tendency to want recognition because of what I gave. Notice what David does. After he's offering up this, this offering. First Chronicles 29. And verse 13. David says, now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. What's his point? When this hit home to me, the faith and works thing cleared up. The, what's the point David's making? He's, they're giving all this offering to God. Is he earning God's favor? Why not? He wouldn't even think to. He says, look, I, here we are. Look, all we're giving you is your stuff, God. Right? Doesn't the Bible say, didn't David say, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills? 
It'd be like me giving you a hundred, or rather, it'd be like you giving me a hundred dollar bill and then me trying to bribe you with a twenty. Are you following that? What is it? Think about your works. What kind of works? Works, talents, money, whatever. Your good works that you can give to God. Think of anything it could be. What is something that you can give to God that isn't already His? Where did you get your health from? Where did you get the strength of mind, your intellect from? Where did you get any know-how to do anything from? Where did you get your money from and your job from and your talents from, your influence from, your musical abilities from, your good looks from? What do you have that you did not receive? In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 4 with me. Kind of building on that idea that we see there coming from King David. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. First Corinthians 4, verse 7 says, Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have, what? That you did not receive. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Yeah, I just put this big offering in the plate. Lord ought to recognize that. Yeah, the Lord recognizes it was all His, and you just gave back a portion of it. And if you gave everything you had, it's still His. So the whole idea, I mean, when you understand this, this does two things. Number one, the whole idea of earning anything by your good works is out the window. Like, it's just totally impossible. How can you, how can you earn anything from, from giving what is already God's? The other thing it does for you is it takes the pressure off. It tries, it, it, the, the idea is to put things back in perspective. Like I was talking about worship and offering sacrifices and are the sacrifices a gift from God to me that I'm recognizing, or are they from me to God appeasing him? And we'll flip-flop on this. If I wanted to take time, we could go into a whole nother. We look at the altars of Cain and Abel. I've done this before. You see those two mindsets in, in honoring God. We have a tendency to come to church and we say, okay, I'm here today, God. Did you see that? Mark that down in the book. You know, as if... And when you begin to think of your religious duties as, let me tell you, let me tell you um, something that we say that betrays our motivation, even if we don't realize it. It's a phrase I've heard now for, I don't know when it came into vogue, it's been several years ago now, but we get in these discussions of whether or not something's a salvation issue. You ever heard that come up? We're talking about something in class, and somebody says, oh, wait a minute, is that a salvation issue? Like, what is that about? Is that a salvation? What bearing does that have on the discussion? But the idea is this. So we talk about, for example, do we... um, Oh, I'm trying to think of something. Uh, Let's just talk about watching Disney movies. Is that a salvation issue? Okay, we're having this discussion. Should we be watching Disney or not? I don't know, is that a salvation issue? When somebody asks that in a discussion, what are we really asking? Will I be lost if I do that? Why am I asking that? Because I'm saying, basically, if, if I'm, am I, am I going to be lost? What's the bare minimum? That's what I'm asking. What's the bare minimum I can do and get by? It's a whole wrong mindset. 
I, I liken it to this. You know, uh, my wife and I tried being the uh, a practice of kissing each other goodbye when I go out or when she goes out. You know, we've been married for 31 years, and I love it. I recommend it. And more to come. But let's just say that I'm on my way out, and my wife says, honey, where's my kiss? And I say, well, are you going to divorce me if I don't kiss you? And she says, well, no, I'm not going to divorce you. And I say, okay, goodbye. That'd be a little rude, wouldn't it be? Like, like, unless I have to. If you're giving me an ultimatum, okay, I'll come and kiss you goodbye. What I'm saying is I don't really enjoy it. I'm just doing it because I have to do it. When we start getting in that discussion as Christians, is that a salvation issue? What I'm saying is I really don't delight in serving God. I'll do what I have to do. Give me the bare minimum. That betrays a problem of the heart. You follow what I'm saying there? So to understand that our good works don't earn anything puts a different motivation on our good works. No longer am I doing I don't have to earn God's favor. God showed his favor in giving us his only begotten son. God showed his favor in accepting you into the beloved. And so your response to that, your obedience is a response to that, not to earn something from the Lord. All things come of thee and of thine own we have given thee. Notice what it says in the book of Faith and Works, page 24. The Lord Jesus imparts what? All the powers, all the grace, all the penitence, all the inclination. Any inclination you have to serve him, to do his will, to want to know him. The Lord gives all of it in presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith. So we're receiving his righteousness by faith. In that, we have all the power, all the grace, all the penitence, everything that we need. Peter would say all things that pertain to life and godliness. Presenting his righteousness for man to grasp by living faith, which is also the gift of God. If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man, and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. Like how, you're going to take the things God gave you and you're going to offer those up as your reason that you ought to be saved? All things come from God. Our works are not worth anything. So why work, right? I mean, that's the follow-up, and that's where we are for a lot of people. That's, hey, I've learned that my works don't amount to anything, so I'm just going to, and this is another one of these phrases today, I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm going to let go and let God. For many people, that means I'm going to sit on my backside and do nothing in my Christian life, but I'm going to put all my energy into living for the world. I'll do put it into my job, I'll put it into my family, but I'm not going to put it into my spiritual life, because that would be works. There's something wrong with that thinking. Hey, look, I'm not getting paid for my works. Why work? Now, look, there has to be right motivation. The, motiva the love of God has to be the motivation, as we've been talking about. But how many times do I have to tell my son I love him before I can tell him to take out the trash? Can God not ask us anything? Here's the question we need to ask. God's given us everything for what purpose? Why has he given us the talents he has? Why has he given us our intellect? Why has he given us the understanding? Why has he given us the strength of body? 
the strength of our hands, the skill to do something. Some of you are skilled workmen. Why did God give you that? I told you I used to work as an electrician. My boss gave me a truck with accounts at gas stations and tire places and anything I'd need for that truck. Anything I needed done, my, my, I had it. He gave me material to do my electrical job with, like wire and boxes and staples and conduit and all the supplies that I would need. He gave me accounts at supply houses and lighting stores and anywhere else I'd need to go to pick something up. He gave me a variety of ladders and drills and other tools. Why? Why do you think he gave me that? Just have it. What do you think he would have thought if I would have driven that truck with all those tools and everything out at the job site and sat in that truck and listened to the radio all day? What do you think? No, he expected me to put those things to use. Did that earn me anything? Well, in that case, it earned me a paycheck. But what if I hadn't done it? That would have been an affront to my boss who supplied me everything I needed. Look at uh, Luke 17 with me. Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 7. There's a fascinating little parable Jesus tells here that I don't hear a whole lot of in, in different preaching that I've heard. It's one of those tucked away things. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus asks this question, Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will come to him when he has come in from the field, will say to him, rather, when he's coming from the field, come and sit down, come at once and sit down and eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So, likewise. What does likewise mean? In the same way. So, likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. Wow. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, I have given you a lease on life. I have promised you eternity. I've given you everything you need in the here and now. And for you not to use it would be like me sitting in that truck and playing the radio instead of going in and doing the job. It'd be like taking the talent, if you want to take that parable of Jesus, and burying the talent in the sand. How many of you remember the parable of the talents? King gives the servants talents. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. What happened to the man who didn't use his talents? Okay? I was thinking that this morning. I was like, how did that end up? I know it was taken away, but that's not where it ended. Okay, it was taken away and it was given to somebody else. And that unfaithful servant was cast out into outer darkness. It didn't just end like, okay, you're not using those talents, I'm going to give them to somebody else. He was lost. So while our good works don't save us, God expects us to put into use the talents he's given us. And to not do so is an affront to God. 
One last passage I want to look at, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm sorry, 2. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul did, how he responded to the grace of God. In fact, well, let's just go there. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. The Apostle says here, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But what? What does in vain mean? To no purpose, right? God didn't give me his grace in vain. He might have given it to somebody else in vain, but to me it wasn't in vain. Why? Because he says, I labored. I did what? How did he labor? I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. But the grace of Christ, what? The Apostle Paul said, when I understood what God did for me, I took every talent I had to live for him. And I gave all the energy I had. He wasn't doing it to earn God's favor. He was doing it because he loved God and he committed his life to God. And out of loyalty to God and love for God, He labored more abundantly than they all. And I want to tell you something. Those who really appreciate the love of Christ and the cross of Christ will be the ones who labor most abundantly. Uh, Steps to Christ, I'm sorry, let me go past this. Steps to Christ, page 44, says, those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements. Right, like, honey, do I have to kiss you? Not asking that. Because Because I love her, I want to kiss her. Amen. They do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. Sweep in the corners. With earnest desire, they yield all and manifest an interest proportionate to the value of the object which they seek. And if I were to grade the the way a lot of Christians value Christ, by the energy they put into their spiritual life, I'd say Christ rates way down here somewhere. He didn't make even the top ten. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. That's what happens when you think you're trying to earn his favor instead of returning his favor. I want to finish up with this this, uh, passage, a fascinating statement about John Wesley. Now, John Wesley, how many of you know who John Wesley was? one of the founders of the Methodist Church, okay? And Wesley, in fact, Wesley started something that was called the Holiness Club. And the reason they called the Methodists, they didn't, and Methodists didn't adopt that name. Other people called them that. It was like a name-calling thing because they had a method for everything. See, John Wesley was convinced that we needed to live holy lives. Is there something wrong with that? Not at all. There's everything right with it. The problem is that in his early experience, he thought that he had to do that in his own strength, and he wore himself out trying to be good. And I hear that testimony from people, ah, yeah, I've been there, done that. I wore myself out trying to be good, and then I learned that Jesus, I'm saved by grace, not by my works, and then I let go and let God, okay? That, that's what I hear. That's the, that's the mindset. That's where a lot of people feel like that's, that's, I really came into understanding the gospel now, because now I don't do anything, put forth any effort in my spiritual life. Uh, that's not how it works. Notice what it says here in Great Controversy. Now, through long years of wearisome and comfortless striving, years of rigorous self-denial of reproach and humiliation, and you may have shared that experience, Wesley had steadfastly adhered to his one purpose of seeking God. Now he had found him. 
and he found that the grace which he had toiled to win by prayers and fasts, by alms deeds and self-abnegation or denying himself was a gift. Powerful, amen? He realized that all that, I was trying to work to earn God's favor and I didn't need to work to earn God's favor. I just needed to receive God's favor. So what did Wesley do once this, once he came into this understanding? Notice, he continued his strict and self-denying life. What? Not now as the ground, but as the result of faith. Not as the root, but the fruit of holiness. The grace of God in Christ is the foundation of the Christian hope, and that grace will be manifested in obedience to God. The Lord has done everything for us. The Lord has given us everything. You're sitting here today possessing talents that God has entrusted you with to build up his kingdom. I used all those tools to build up my, my boss's company. But God has given you tools and talents to build up his kingdom. He expects those to be put to use. There's a world that knows him not, who needs to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is waiting on you to share it. He's waiting for you to put those talents to use in the upbuilding of his kingdom. How many of you want to say, Lord, take me, take all my talents, all things come of thee, and Lord, I want to give back to you your own. Is that your desire today? How many of you want to give back to God his own? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you today for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ through which we receive the abundance of blessings in our intellect, in our health, in our different and varied talents and skills, in our money, in everything that we own and everything that we possess. You have blessed us. And Father, too often we have excused ourselves from putting those talents to use and in doing so have simply enlisted by default, on the enemy's side. And today, as your Spirit is speaking to us, as you are calling us out of darkness and into light, away from the power of Satan to the power of God, I pray, Father, that you would help us all to choose today whom we will serve, to put our talents to use for the upbuilding of your kingdom, for the glorifying of your name, and that when Jesus comes again, we may hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Thank you, Father, for we ask and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.